taking command is a story of how God, through a few questing and engrailed master masons operating in America, gave the world the gift of spiritual freedom. Washington staff meeting in progress, Brooklyn Heights, Livingston Mansion, overlooking the East River. Brigadier General Mifflin, the British advancements are getting closer, I'd say a mile and a half out now. We will have to fight or retreat. If the order is to retreat, my Pennsylvania regiment and myself will be your outermost rear guard. Thank you, General Mifflin. Any word yet on Sullivan, Sterling, and Woodhull? General Reed says, I believe they have all been taken prisoner. I am sure they will be treated well, Washington says, shaking his head. We will retreat tonight. Let it be known that we are moving out the wounded first and that all healthy men will prepare for attack. Tell no one unless it is his time to embark. Colonel Glover has found and readied the boats to come across the river tonight. We must move 9,000 men. Are your Marblehead men ready to man the armada, Colonel Glover? They are, sir. Each one of my men would give his life for you, General. They are yours ever since they saw you handle that big backwoodsman and attended your Masonic meeting. They will stand the line for you. We'll bring the boats across and begin ferry operations by midnight. Thank you, Colonel. General Mifflin will keep the campfires going and routine activity will continue. Generals, let your officers know as their troop departure time draws near. Absolute silence in all things is the order. And remember, keep the point of honor within yourself open to God and he will make the crooked ways straight. Thanks be to God. Amen. Dismissed. Scene 64, 11.30 p.m., very dark. We see an armada of small boats approaching the Brooklyn side across the East River. Colonel Glover leaps off his craft. The wounded and the weak are waiting. We see Marblehead men Finn, Turner, Stephen, Sean, and Christian deftly bring in their boats with many others. They help load in the men and then silently take off with a nod. The Virginians and backwoods men nod their thanks to the sailors, their one-time foes. Washington is there with his magnifying presence, overseeing everything, and every so often he nods his approval to Glover's men who glow with pride. Glover gives them a stern look if they even try to whisper, there's Washington. Scene 65. From a distance, British soldiers observe General Mifflin's troops tending campfires and moving about in usual camp activity. The Brits nod to each other that all is well, and then they move on. Back on the American side, generals inform their officers of the new plan, and troops are moved toward the boats with smiles on their faces. Cut to dawn, fast approaching. 
Washington's staff looks to their general with consternation because there are still so many men to move. But Washington is centered in his belief that all will be well. A camera shot to the water reveals a thick fog approaching. The vast fog soon settles all around them with only six feet of visibility. Washington walks with purpose over to Colonel Glover, helping with the loading of troops and horses. He whispers, Glover, can your men handle this? No problem, General. That's why I chose them. Feel navigates their craft. Glover intuits his commander. God knew what he was doing when he chose you, General. And you as well, Colonel. They nod in mirroring sameness. Scene 66. It is 9 a.m. and the fog has lifted. A very heavy-set British General Grant, his officer's staff, and troops are now at Fort Sterling, where they discover that Washington and all his men are gone. Grant is outraged as he scans the far bank across the East River Bank. All gone? All gone? Who had the watch? I did, sir, Major Kimball says. Grant is livid and looks for his answer. General Grant, they vanished. Vanished? Explain. The watch made their rounds and reported that the rebel fires were burning. Usual activities were happening. Everything was in order. There was nothing unusual. Grant is completely red now. Nothing unusual? They escape from right under our noses. Kimball adds, and a fog came in. A fog, Grant says. You want to blame this on a fog? Kimball, this is not one of those plays you participate in. Did anyone else see the fog? Other officers nod. Grant is no longer mad. I should court-martial you, but I'm not going to. Nothing was amiss on our side. Washington, where did he get the boats and who rowed them across? They left in a hurry. Their cannon, hmm, small boats, 9,000 men don't make a stand, they fear us. General, Captain Montressor says, it's not Kemble's fault nor anyone else's. One absurdity has produced another. We should have pursued our victory. Such a disappointing finish, letting them retire in safety, has made such a damaging difference. Washington might gain momentum from this. Grant wants to agree, but thinks better of it. Captain, General Howe did what he thought prudent at the time. We were approaching a walled fire line. A lieutenant says, the general was a bit slack, something like Breed Hill, turning our win into a let-off for the rebels. Grant ignites instantly. Lieutenant, enough! Our general had his reasons. Their attention is shifted by the sound of approaching riders, Howe and his officer's staff, Patterson, Percy, and Captain Charles Stedman. Howe and Percy dismount and approach Grant. Howe is very concerned. I see. Grant, explain. My watch did their job, General, throughout the night. They saw usual activity and fires burning. A fog came in about 6.30 a.m. with a six-foot visibility. When it lifted, they were gone. Gone? They left everything. Their cannon. They fear us, General. I wager they will not face us again. How studies each one of the men in charge and finds them not to be lacking in sincerity. 
Now he is shaking his head with a little smile. Percy looks at him and lets out some angry breath. Grant finds some breathing room. Grant says, never thought I'd say it, sir, but the farmer, in spite of himself, somehow made a very daring and superbly executed evacuation. Excuse me, Montressor says, I find it cowardly, generals. Grant showing his disdain with tone and look at his captain. Grant says, they had no other option. We would have leveled them. One must admire the foe, which has the presence of mind to know he will lose if he does not change his plan. Indeed, Percy says, I second Grant. Their army made a fine retreat in good order. Not easy to move 9,000 undisciplined men in complete silence. I say, though, that they will never stand before us in battle again. Percy It was a daring and superbly executed move, a wise move. They know now, Grant says. Montressor and a few others roll their eyes momentarily and say nothing. Stedman whispers to Percy, A stunning and glorious retreat. Indeed, Captain, but it takes more than that to win a war, Percy says. Stedman nods. All right, he retreated, Howe said. Let's take a look at what he left behind cannon. Percy says, we will be home before Christmas. Scene 67. We see British officers in camp walking into bigger white tents for a Masonic field lodge meeting. As they go in, they are greeted by officer master masons, and there is a display of warrants and regalia of the field lodge. The Bible is open to St. John. In the beginning was the word, and two large Masonic brick-shaped stones are placed on either side of a chair. One officer says, Unusual, isn't it? A mandatory meeting? Maybe some of the officers displayed less than their usual ardor after we failed to follow up on our advantage. The first one says, the general calling off the general attack? The go-getters are wondering. He had his reasons, valid in my mind. Another officer, how was a bit slack though. First officer, he's never had a disappointing spell. Right, he tends to be precise. The second one says, this time was different. Such a succession of errors. You were there. We were ready to storm the rebels' fortifications and finish them off. And then the desist order came. General Vaughn could not believe it, nor I. General Howe always finishes. There will be a rigorous examination. The first officer, the ministry. The second one nods. He had his reasons. I'm sure of it. Maybe lodge tonight because there is an upcoming engagement and he is preparing our spirit. The three officers enter Howe's tent. Other top officers conduct other lodge meetings. In the center of the tent, a big fire has been lit. All have gathered and now stand on the perimeter of a big etched oblong circle around the fire. Howe stands with them. The fire before us represents our sun or sunlit center in the midst of our being, the light that awaits us in the end of our questing spiral through life. We will move toward it now in a solemn dance. Who will demonstrate the footwork for those who are new to it? Two officers raise their hands and then in sync, 
they step forward with the left foot, then the left foot comes down, then each rocks forward on the right, balances, then they rock back, left, right. When the others get a feel for it, they participate. When Howe determines that the feeling is there in the motion of most of them, he calls a stop. Very good, warrior brethren. We gather here to remember that God, our source, is ever our primary care, not our state or king or ourselves. As masons and brethren, our foremost purpose is to advance the experience of God so that all may form a relation with him. Our father through nature, our brother through humanity, and our bride through love. And how do we know when we perceive this state of being, when we are at our X? We feel that feeling quickening our body from a point within. We perceive ourselves mirrored in the quickening. Then we are of the fearless flame within, without waver. We are this feeling, this light that guides our horse, aims our musket, strengthens our will, and informs our insight. We know when we feel true fellowship. We can tell immediately who is on the level and who is not. We do not take the measure of a man. Our spirit within does, and we perceive its wisdom that comes to us. Brethren, Masonic privilege comes with loving God. Since our first battle on Breed Hill, we have lost many officers and men. We Masons know they are still with us and have passed on as pillars of light within the light. They rest a while and then enter this human performance once again to further perfect their souls. If we did not know this at some level, we would not be warriors. Fear is never a contagion, but a powerless impression, because we know how to align with God through Christ, our cornerstone, the one real power. When you came in tonight, you saw the square resting on the sacred volume, the symbol of the human soul as it is generated out of the divine word which underlies it. That soul was created square, perfect, and good from the Creator's hand. But as we know, the soul is invested with freedom of choice and capacity to err. We are here to feel our divine selves with freedom of choice, our will. And the more we perfect ourselves on the pyramid of perception, the greater our attained degree, and the more nearly we will be allied with our source. Brethren, our profession gives us many advantages over those of a more even and constant nature. We have all our passions and affections roused and exercised when such exertions are called forth upon the field. Few men are acquainted with the degrees of their own courage till danger prove them and are seldom justly informed how far the love of honor or dread of shame are superior to the love of life. This is a knowledge to be best acquired in an army. Our actions are there in the presence of the world to be freely censored or approved. A battle gained is, I believe, the highest joy mankind is capable of receiving for God and the honor of one's country. Now, 
who amongst us has experienced the slowness, the difference in time and the fullness that is both you and not you? I have, Patterson says. We were racing, and I was coming from behind, and then I felt the difference between one moment and the next. My horse hit a new stride as I felt his legs become mine, and I knew ahead of time I had won. You had arrived at the center point where one cannot err, Patterson? Precisely. I, horse, symmetry. As I took out the action, the thought, and arrived at the center seal where I cannot err through feel. I found myself bound and free as I received all. How and Patterson share a smile regarding Percy in absence of thought during dressage. The divine paradox, Patterson, precisely. Only that which descends from heaven ascends again in feel. Thank you, Patterson. There was a moment during our Breed Hill battle, Howe says, where I experienced the same. That battle, as most know here in attendance, was terrible. And then, in the midst of it, I felt utterly renewed and in fullness with God. During the third assault, God was my shield. I can attest to those words, Patterson says, for we met there, and I felt him to be so. How nods to Patterson in fellowship. The feel of both Patterson and Howe in their words, mirror igniting the group with zeal. Anyone else? Howe asks. Well, sir, Kemble says, I was tired tonight. But being here amongst so many who feel it and mirror the essence has enlivened me for whatever may happen next. Thank you, my brethren, for the food within. <laughs> Kemble, Howe says, we will harness your amassed spirit. Sentry duty is yours all night. And if a fog comes in, how Kemble and others share a laugh. Yes, brother, I will charge in and find the rebels. Everyone laughs. Hear, hear, Kemble. And to know thyself, as the oracle says, means to be in love. To know that feeling is to know God. Balfour says, yes, sir, I know that feeling. When I melt into my lady, and where there were once two distinct forms, now there is one. As in Shakespeare's immortal poem, The Phoenix and the Turtle, I perceive, Brother Hal, that you know of what I speak. For you mirror all in sameness. How's inner circle share polite knowing looks? I agree on the whole, Brother Balfour. Well, we have come full circle, for I feel our seal of circumcision at X marks a spot. In this moment of mirroring spirit, we love God more than self. All are one. Thank you, my brethren. This is the feeling we quest for at all times. It keeps us alive on the battlefield and enriches every part of our life, for it is life, God's life, and then we are free to play at life in God. Hear, hear, gentlemen, 
Now that we are all where we want to be within our fellowship feeling, please bow your heads for a closing prayer. All bow their heads. O sovereign and most worshipful of all masters, who in thy infinite love and wisdom has devised our order as a means to draw thy children near thee and rebind our dislocated souls to you, our source. We know your gift of the unmanifested light depends upon the ardor of our desire for it. Now the camera moves back to take all in and then cuts to Hal. Please, freely mingle now as brothers. For no better feeling is there amongst warriors who share life and death every day than this communion in God. Drinks are on the house. Hear, hear, brethren, all say. They break into a meaningful and appropriate song. Scene 68, Staten Island, September 11th, 1776. Elizabeth and General Howe are out riding very early in the dark before the dawn. They pull up at a view spot as the glimmering eastern light begins to spread in a wavering line through the darkness. Howe says there is something profoundly moving in the landscape before the dawn. One feels the soft light, William, the twilight that is God effortlessly. Yes, I feel it now in you, E. Oh, the softness is the divine light I feel in you, William. His hand moves and enfolds her. This touch illumines their face all the more. I wish the day never did unfold more than she has so we too could ever be here together. General Hal slides from his horse and lifts E to him and he kisses her. They stand with his arms around her before the burgeoning eastern light. Hal says in a low voice, I have something for you. E turns and looks at him as William takes a small package from his pocket. Elizabeth, my order says I am to give the woman that I honor most my pledge of purity of heart. These white gloves are the symbol of our love on God's quest to know his self. And Elizabeth, you are the living ideal of that perfection toward which I strive. Elizabeth is awash in noble tears as she receives his token. O oh, William, I will be all that you are and more for you, forever. She holds them and smiles with joyous, creative thought. William, may I keep half of your token and give the other half to you to always wear into battle for me as my token for you? William smiles with joy at her idea. Yes, yes you may, Elizabeth. He takes a glove, and they are each other's. As I told you during the last battle, I felt your ardent shield of love around me. I may not be a poet, but I speak to you, Elizabeth, with words I have never used before. I must go soon and meet with my brother. There is a peace conference today. 
Yes, he says, but wait one moment more, my general, until we are no more. E nestles into him, and William smiles, entirely contented. Elizabeth, you make me believe that I could walk away from all of this, and there would be endless eastern skies. I know just the place. It holds a sweeping easter sky that fills with a wilderness of stars at night. Elizabeth turns and mirrors his poetry. Yes, but for now... God's duty calls. Howe helps her up onto her horse as her unmade-up hair cascades all around her and his look says, how lovely you are. He shakes himself from his thoughts and mounts up. We see them gallop off and then we catch up with them as they stop before their destination, holding the reins of their horses as they walk. William I didn't know if I should tell you, but since I've heard this now twice in passing, I thought I must. They say, some regulars, I don't know them, that you are different, that you have not been finishing battles you should or or maybe would have before. Hal listens, head down. Men say many things, usually good for when they say them. William I never need to know about your military affairs. My only pleasure is the way we are in love. Hal hugs her, and they go into their mansion, the billop house. He walks behind her, head down, thinking over what he has heard. Scene 69, same day, 9.30 a.m. General Howe and the Admiral in the billop house. They meet before the next peace delegation from the Continental Congress arrives. The Admiral says, Franklin, Rutledge, and Adams will be arriving in 45 minutes. I think it best that I am not in attendance, the General says. Not in attendance? You were all set to attend last night. It has come to my attention that doubt is already being cast on my seemingly cautious and practical action of late, Robert. More specifically, that I am not finishing battles. You have ever worn the outward show of peace, Robert. Be so still. My non-participation will demonstrate that I have less interest in peace as I continue to maintain a discreet and dignified silence on these matters. You will continue to play both parts, war and peace, and I, war for now. Otherwise, the ministry will grow more suspicious than they already are by my delays. It is rumored that General Burgone, who is still in England, has gained the patronage of Minister Germain and through him the favor of our cousin the king. This may be why my requests for reinforcements go unanswered. Point taken, General. Burgone, never one for fellowship or our guiding principles, is ever looking for his next advantage. But you do intend to listen and watch the conference as best you can from some vantage point, William nods. The Admiral continues, as we discussed and you divined, Franklin will be passing as much subtext in words and feel as he deems possible while in the presence of, as I hear tell, non-seeing nor feeling John Adams, who is not a Mason. 
I will do all I can to make our intentions going forward subtly clear that this is a time for America to rise like a phoenix with God's principles in play and together with their will and persevering zeal and our continued resistance to any will but God's, we will prevail. It comes to me with clarity from within, Robert, that my absence is needed. You will represent us, and if Franklin perceives your hidden meaning, he will convey his findings to Washington. Soon there will be foreign play, if all perceive God's subtle inward intention. Good luck then, brother. Thank you, the Admiral says, though luck has little effect now when I am but a messenger and God is in command. Scene 70 Admiral Howe is waiting near the shore ahead of his ceremonial guard as his guest's launch strikes ground. A plank is lowered and we see John Adams walk forth first, then Edward Rutledge, followed by Benjamin Franklin, who looks intently at Admiral Howe, who walks forward to meet his guests. Gentlemen, the Admiral nods, and only Adams does not return it. You make me a very high compliment, and you may depend upon it. I will consider it the most sacred of things, that you felt no need to hold our officer, your hostage, until your safe return. Dr. Franklin steps forward and shakes hands with Lord Howe, and their lightly smiling mouths are in full motion, which is a dead giveaway to a keen observer that the spirit is in play between the two of them as they mirror all in divine fellowship. Their communion is entirely lost upon the unintuitive Adams, but not on Rutledge, who is a young and very aware Master Mason. Franklin then introduces the Admiral to Rutledge. They nod crisply, feeling the moment in fellowship. As they walk toward the meeting place, the camera cuts to a second floor window where we see General Howe with a small smile on his face. He saw all that passed between his brother and Franklin. The camera follows him, and then we catch a moment of Elizabeth, who is there too. Camera cut back to the admiral, who pauses, as do his guests, before the tall Hessian honor guard. A Hessian colonel at their side snaps a command, and his guard presents arms, muskets with long 17-inch bayonets. They are in two columns with a path between them that leads to General Howe's HQ billet house. Please, gentlemen, the Admiral says, right this way. My Hessian guard and myself are honored by your attendance. Franklin steps up to walk through. Adams looks fearful and Rutledge is filled with zeal. Franklin addresses the Admiral. May our immortal peace principles be firmly wrought into our two bodies, Admiral Howe. The Admiral smiles and mirrors energy. Adams says under his breath to Rutledge, what was that? Adams is suspicious and narrows his eyes and perceives not Rutledge's affinity for the Admiral's fellowship notions. Franklin was saying... Rutledge says, may our peace mission be a success. 
Oh, yes, yes, right, Adam says. Adam has a deprecating look on his face as he said that because his thinking is that he is the only shrewd one in attendance. Rutledge makes a slightly disparaging face in Adam's direction. Franklin walks proudly through the Hessians. Rutledge walks happily through, and Adams closes his eyes and follows Rutledge closely. Admiral Howe has observed all of this as he follows them. Scene 71. A guard opens the door of the billop house that has a front veranda. The largest room has been decorated elegantly and romantically with moss and branches. On a table are a good claret, bread, cold ham, and mutton. The men sit with their small plates and glasses. The Hessian colonel joins them. We see Franklin and Adams turn toward the door a few times, wondering if General Howe will soon be approaching. Lord Howe's secretary is there, Henry Strachey. As the admiral begins speaking, the camera cuts to a glass window with an X on it that is soundlessly pulled open by General Howe so he can see and hear the proceedings. Admiral Howe begins, I have always been known in England as a well-wisher to America. Did not America bestow the very high honor of a statue in Boston and a monument in Westminster upon my eldest brother, Lord George, who died in the arms of your General Putnam during our combined effort against the French? Franklin and Rutledge say, indeed. The two of them nod while Adam shows his lack of respect for honor and bravery with a roll of his eyes which the Admiral observes. In truth, gentlemen, I feel for America as for a brother. And if America should fail, I should feel and lament it like the loss of a brother. Franklin understands the usage of the word brother as Masonic brother, so he makes light of it to throw off Adams, who is wondering. Franklin gives the Admiral a quick nod of fellowship, and then he makes an overt bow and smile for Adams. Franklin says, My lord, we will use our utmost endeavor to save your lordship that mortification. I suppose, Admiral Howe says, you will endeavor to give us employment in Europe. There follows a silence as each participant interprets the meaning of the Admiral's words differently. Camera cut to the General and Elizabeth. The General is seen whispering in E's ear. My brother meant, E puts up her hand, I know. He meant, we are with you, and if you act well, we English will be posted elsewhere. Very good, my E. E smiles and tugs at his uniform, pulling him closer. She whispers to him. Franklin shines and perceives all. Camera cut to Admiral Howe in progress. Gentlemen, I hope to reach America before the army had made a move to begin the campaign and address with candor and discussion your petition of grievances against the prohibition so that it might be wrought. The admiral glances at all three and longest at Franklin into a permanent system, a reflection, if you will, of the best intentions of our Magna Carta. The admiral's emphasis is on the syllable intentions. Camera cut to General Howe whispering to E.
Rot is a mason word denoting a change to one's soul in God, and the best intentions means God's will to transform America into his realm. Elizabeth loves all that she hears and she glows. Camera cut back to the admiral. But now, with your declaration of independence, that act precludes all treaty making according to my authority. So let that lie dormant as I speak to you as a friend beyond my powers. Let us devise a plan to Day further bloodshed. Franklin says, You may depend upon our taking care of that, my lord. If the king's government, Admiral says, were reestablished here, your Congress would cease. If we are to get on, it is unnecessary to stand upon this latest development. Franklin continues, Your lordship may consider us as you see fit. We are, on our part, at liberty to consider ourselves in our real character. Admiral Howe is smiling and nodding. He knows Franklin speaks of the liberty of his soul, while he, himself, is partially under state control. Franklin says, laying all show aside, let us speak as friends. Camera cut to the general in E. The general says, look at Adams. He hates the word friend, a born politician. No fellowship and no feel. Camera cut back to Adams. Your lordship may view me in any way but a British subject. Admiral Howe now, in a very aristocratically styled put-down, says, Mr. Adams is a decided character. The subtext which Franklin catches is there will be no change to Adam's soul in this lifetime, for he is narrow-minded, not of God's expansive, creative, one mind. Rutledge says, I think with Dr. Franklin that the conversation may be among friends. I am here to restore peace, the Admiral says in an advantageous way to Great Britain and the colonies. You know, gentlemen, that we expect aid from America. Our dispute seems only to be concerning the mode of obtaining it. Franklin speaks, aid we never refused upon requisition. Franklin, lifting his eyebrow, smiles yes to the admiral. Subtext, I get the drift. Camera cut to E and the general. The general says Franklin perceives all. Camera cut back to the meeting. Franklin continues. Nevertheless, this conversation, if productive, of no immediate good, may in effect be of service at a future time. Camera cut to E and General Howe as we see the two of them thoroughly engaged in listening. E says, darling, Franklin is in play. I can feel it. Indeed, the general replies. Camera cut. Franklin is speaking. As your lordship has no proposition to make to us, give me leave to ask if we should make propositions to Great Britain. Not that I know or am authorized that we shall. You would receive and transmit them. 
Franklin looks at the Admiral in such a way that says, we will pass secret letters to each other. Cut to E and General Howe, who look at each other, and she mouths the word, voila. Cut back, the Admiral now with measured mirth and a very hidden smile. I do not know that I could avoid receiving any papers that should be put into my hands, though I am doubtful of the propriety of transmitting them here. Still, I do not say that I would decline doing so. Camera cut to Ian Howe. Howe speaks. Finito, Franklin is with us. Elizabeth offers the general her hand. He pulls E to him instead, and they kiss. Camera cut back. Admiral Howe speaks. Gentlemen, thank you for attending. Please refresh yourselves at the table before your journey back. It was a pleasure to meet with all of you. Adams in a low voice to Franklin. The admiral did not mean me, and what a waste of time. Washington was correct. One peace meeting was enough. Franklin's face registers that Adam is not wise because he does not feel God, and he is a social simpleton. Franklin says, yes, Adams, yes. Shall we partake? No, you partake, Adams says. It's a long journey back, Franklin adds. Adam thinks about it. Why not, since you insist? Camera cut to E and the general. She motions to the general to watch. They see Adam's head to the table, and he fails to see Franklin's quick fellowship nod in wisdom to Admiral Howe, who returns it with a deep smile. Camera cut to E, who looks at General Howe with eyes wide in suppressed laughter and fun at Adam's expense. Wow she says. General Howe on the level now with E. Elizabeth, all mirth aside, remember no one can know ever, and not my brother. He has never been in love, though he is endlessly faithful. He would never understand what we do here today. Do you be silent upon it? E clears herself of gaiety. I am with you on the level in God's design. The general nods and enfolds her. William E. says, Always know my soul can never deny yours, for there do I find our beloved God. E. moves apart from him and crosses her arm in X, marks the spot.